to another episode of the Moose Ramble podcast. We have another full house for you tonight, so once again, you're in for a treat as we are joined by myself and Mary and John. First up, Mary, how are you? I'm really well. I'm hoping when this goes out, this will actually be episode 50. So I would just like to say thank you so much to anyone who has listened, downloaded, commented, shared. It's been a real learning curve for us, but it's also been loads of good fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Andy. John, how <laughs> <are> you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I realised as well it was 50, so that's a wee bit of a milestone. Absolutely. In total, we've done nearly 100 pods with all the wee extra bits and stuff like that. Yay! So it's been very interesting so far. It's been a real education as well. I had to learn how to edit, which may or may, or may not have worked, <laughs> <laughs> depending on what you, uh, how you look. With. And uh, I'm always looking for that wee nugget when I'm editing, uh, just to make Mary look bad right from the very start of the podcast. <laughs> well, I think you found that quite successfully <laughs> on all 50 episodes. <laughs> I mean, with the, the greatest respect, it's not like a short material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> yep, I call it Nazi gold. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I'll uh, the SS over there. Anyway, <laughs> so in this new brand spanking episode of the Moose Scramble podcast, which, as Mary said, episode 50, we're going to discuss the new horror film from, from Blumhouse and director Scott Derrickson, The Black Phone. Hello? Don't hang up. Who are you? You know all our names. You're getting out of here. Please! Please let the dreams be real. See the wall in front of you? I tore a long cable loose from down there. Quit, you made me do. Please hurry. You remember what I told you? This someday I have to stand up for myself. Someday is today, Finn. Based on a short story by Joe Howe. This is based in 1978 and follows a sort of coming of age style drama of young kids kind of in that kind of transition period they're getting older you've got the main kid uh, Finney Blake played by Mason Thames uh, Mason Thames sorry and he's kind of like he's bullied at school his dad's an alcoholic his sister gets beaten it's just it's quite cliched in a lot of ways but unfortunately this fortuitous summer kids are going missing abducted by the infamous and notorious grabber as the kids are calling him played by Ethan Hawke Vinny becomes the latest victim of the grabber and he's kidnapped and wakes up in a basement. Soundproofed, uh, with no way to cry for help or get out. The phone rings one day and when he answers it, it's not necessarily the help he expects as the ghosts of the grabber's former victims start speaking to him and think this is Finny is a way they can get their revenge by proxy, by giving him the tips to help him where they failed and were ultimately killed by the grabber. I feel like this film got advertised years ago. I feel like the trailers have been doing the rounds for a long, long time and it has been delayed a few times. And I think it was actually originally premiered at a film festival last September. So in terms of it coming out in June, it's been a while for it to hit the mainstream semi releases. I'm a big fan of Blumhouse films in general. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ethan Hawke, especially when it comes to his horror films. I think they sometimes fly a bit under the radar. Films are sinister on the purge. His performances anyway, because you don't really associate him much with horror films. You still think him as that kind of indie darling. Joe Hill, famous horror writer, 
and Scott Derrickson, famous horror director, returning back to his roots here, famously starting the horror with Hellraiser 5, as me and John have discussed in previous podcasts. But yeah, I I really enjoyed this film. I was looking forward to it. I had high hopes for it. For me, it did not disappoint. John, what about yourself? Same. Did not disappoint at all. I was intrigued by the film even before I saw it because of the first trailer, because the first trailer was really sparse. There was very, very little in it. And so obviously with the phone ringing and it's just, you're going, what's going to happen next? So immediately I was interested in it. And when I actually saw the film, I just thought, this is fantastic. It's beautifully paced. It's very well acted. Some cracking performances in there from both adults and children. And it just, it ticked every single box that I could want from a reasonably low budget horror film. Loved it. Made it about yourself. Yeah, no, I would echo what, what John said. The first trailer kind of had me interested because it didn't really give too much away. And then I kind of forgot about it for a while because I, I agree with you. The trailer seemed to come out like almost, it feels like years ago. It's probably not. I've just, again, lost all sense of time. But I liked how it did outstay its welcome. It was very like sort of neat in the sense that it was kind of like once it got going, it was almost sort of like one location. It wasn't like your silly jump scares. There was a couple of things that kind of made me jump out my skin, but nothing ridiculous. And I just thought it was actually, it was horror because it was very plausible. You know, it was scary because these things do happen and and, and have happened. And I think that's where the the horror element of it came in. And it was also quite a frustrating watch because obviously you're wanting him to get out of the room and break free and every sort of field attempt, you're just like, damn it, with him and... Yeah, I mean, really well acted by Ethan Hawke and the, the child actors as well. I thought it was I thought it was excellent. Yeah, definitely. In regards to child actors there, you had as mentioned Mason Thames as Finney Blake and Madeline McGraw his sister, who starts experiencing psychic dreams. And that's what I really like about this film. It's a horror film with elements to it. You've got the serial killer element, which is very grounded in reality, as you mentioned there. That's quite terrifying because it's very plausible. You've got a supernatural element. You've got two supernatural elements. You've got a psychic child and ghosts of former victims, it can be difficult to juggle that many different horror elements and make it the one cohesive story. Because most films are, this is a ghost story, this is a serial killer story, this is a slasher story, this is a haunted house story. They all have their own niche. But you try and overlap certain elements, it doesn't always work. Like take a Friday the 13th Part 7, where Jason Voorhees fights a psychic teenager. It's a bit weird. And this, these elements all come together and work very well. Nothing really feels out of place. And they all feel quite separate in their own little bubbles in a strange way as well, because you've got the ghost element, which kind of revolves around Finney, the psychic element, which revolves around his sister, and the serial killer element, which is even Hawk. Even Hawk isn't plagued by the ghost in the same way. So the supernatural element stays in its lane, for lack of a better term, and doesn't get silly at any point. You know, this is a spoiler, and if you don't see the ghost fly out the phone and, like, drags Ethan Hawke into hell or anything, you know, it's for a supernatural film, it's got a very grounded base to it, and I think that's a hard thing to pull off. But we mentioned Scott Derrickson as a veteran of the horror genre. He's made some cracking films, such as Sinister, which has been considered to be the scientifically proven scariest film ever made. <laughs> and Ooh, okay. The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is a very good film as Love well that. and here was a five which was really good <laughs> <laughs> but mary you're not known for being the biggest horror fan by the podcast no. so what 
was it about the film that drew you to it? I, mean, so it's been... I think it's the reality of it, right? So, I, like I said, I think it's very plausible that you know there's a a crazy man in the in the street who likes to grab children and put them in the, the back of his van or whatever. What I liked about it in terms of the horror elements was again that felt very real. So for me, I'm looking at the character of Gwen and the horrors that she's experiencing in her home, and that scene in the kitchen where her dad is beating it up was brutal like I really felt extremely uncomfortable watching it those tears felt real from the actress Madeline McGraw she was phenomenal and I kind of thought that her supernatural powers were from trauma or grief it was almost like because she was so trauma bonded to her brother that's how she knew she was going to help him they'd obviously lost their mother they were getting really badly abused by their alcoholic father it almost felt like a trauma response so in a way I wasn't looking at it going that's ridiculous you know how is she seen I felt like I understood her as a character and I understood where these you know elements were coming from and the same goes for the ghosts as well like if you are trapped in a on the whole windowless airless room by the local nutter in a devil mask I imagine you would start to imagine my the first person who's been here well no because I've seen this in the newspaper and I've seen these posters up for missing children it all felt very very real to me and I like that type of horror because it's not jump scares for being silly it's things that could actually happen and that to me is is far more sinister than anything that's jumping out of walls or as you say pulling things through a phone or whatever it all felt very real and I, I thought it was brilliantly done yourself John it, it felt like a horror film right from the start based on the environment they were living in Obviously, they're living in, I think it was a suburb of Denver. So it wasn't like an American teen horror film where you had really good-looking American teens and all this sort of stuff. It wasn't like that at all. It was a wee bit more muted because you got that in terms of the colour palette. It was all browns and greys and everything. It was all, it wasn't great. And I think that's got to do with the fact of where it was supposed to be, I don't think, because obviously Denver's so high up. It's about a mile above sea level or something, isn't it? So it's it's not, sometimes not the most picturesque place, although I'm sure our listener in Denver will send his photos to <laughs> tell us differently. And almost, it was like they were in a, a horror environment from the start, like you say, the abusive alcoholic father the way that Finney was treated at school that he was bullied at school and that first fight that you saw which involved the wee uh, the, the wee karate kid guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he was great. You, you thought oh that's you know you thought it was just going to be a a bit of a fight and it would just like deck the guy and that would be, it'd be over in about 30 seconds because you knew he could obviously handle himself but then he just kept getting tore into him yeah. and it was just this bloody pulp of a face and you're thinking this isn't a normal sort of mainstream horror film this is something just a wee bit different this is setting the scene for something you might not expect so when he was actually grabbed and i really like the name the grabber uh, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of like 1970s television presenters that kind of thing there those sort of names as well it almost seemed to Finney like a bit of a relief he was because he always assumed that he was going to be grabbed because of what his sister kept saying to him she was just saying well yeah yeah he's still out there he's still going to he's still going to get people and all so he had this sort of resigned air to him that he was going to be taken at some point so when it actually happened and he was in a room and it was deadly quiet and there was no sound at all it was just him 
it was almost like a wee bit of a relief for him, obviously, <laughs> only for a couple of seconds, and then he realised, <laughs> fuck, what am I doing here? You know, this is really, really bad. But yeah, I liked the way that it built up to that. It took its time. It didn't rush to get anywhere. You got a wee sense of who the grabber was to begin with, but they never really tried to hide it all that much, which I found to be very refreshing. So you weren't going to have any sort of big reveal in that way. They had other ways of doing that with the way that the grabber looked, for instance, and I think we'll probably talk about that a wee bit more. But his whole look about him was far more scary in the way that that all unfolded. I thought that that was particularly well done. It just sort of ramped up the sort of the tension all the way through it. And there was a first interaction between the, the grabber and Finney when he was in the basement and he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to hurt you. And you're thinking, hmm, so what is or who mm-hmm. is, you know? So mm-hmm. there was all that going on. Now, whether that came to fruition or not, watch the film. But it certainly increased the tension, just ratched up just that wee bit more. So you were finding yourself just more and more concerned about his welfare and how he was going to get with us. So, yeah. Yep, absolutely superb. Yeah, and there's that, that scene in the basement when Finney wakes up and the gravel's just sitting staring at him and he's just, yeah. like, just like watching you. Uh, it's just so like skin-crawling creepy and there's definitely some not-so-subtle undertones to what the gravel does with these kids before he kills them, but they don't make it overtly gratuitous to the point that you're repulsed by it because repulsed, you're repulsed by it, but you're repulsed by the suggestion opposed to the in your face element of it, basically. And mm-hmm. But that's always that, worse because it, it always yeah, comes back exactly. to, and this is why I mean, I always refer to that Hounds of Love because they shut the door and you don't see what's going on. So in your own head, you start to think, oh my god, does he do this? Does he do that? What does he do with all these kids? Because what I and I, what I quite liked about it was he wasn't picking on like a particular type of kid. So it was male, female, tall, short, strong, scrawny. So you're kind of going, okay, what is this guy actually doing here? And then, as you say, there's a couple of kind of hints and you're like, uh, you know, am I reading too much into this? Is this as dark as it's alluding to? Like, I quite like the fact that it lets you do your own thinking as well. Yeah, and it's, it's I'm about thinking grounded idea as well. It's so, it's so based on the idea of the urban legend of the serial killer, children's entertainer, in this case, a magician driving about in the van, conducting, and he's driving about in plain sight as well. You see the van a few times early on in the film, just in the background and that, driving mm-hmm. about, and it's creepy, but Ethan Hawke's performance, and we spoke about the child actors in this, and I think a part that makes this film really effective is it is actual children. It's children playing roughly, if not their age. These are, like, uh, Dawson's Creek-style teenagers here, playing kids, <laughs> these are actual these are children. <laughs> Yeah. playing the role. Ethan Hawke's performance is so understated. He's overly creepy in one way, but he wears that mask for the most part, so he never really has to hammer up. He doesn't have to like chew the scenery or anything, which I think would just detract from his menace and how sinister he is. But he does wear that mask quite a lot, so you don't see a lot of his facial expressions. What was your thoughts on that? Not like Ethan Hawke as an actor. A lot of indie stuff, did some horror stuff, as you mentioned. In this, he's very rarely got that mask off. So he's having to act with that mask on. And the mask changes sometimes from a full mask covering his face to covering half his face. What's your thoughts on his performance? I thought there was going to be a reason for the mask. I thought maybe he was good because I was trying to work out why it was only half or why it sometimes changed. And I thought maybe there's like a disfigurement because I thought if he's going to, and I said this in the view, if he's going to bump them off, he doesn't need to hide 
who he is. So to me, it was just like, okay, this is just another way to scare these kids. It's just another part of the game for him is to really make them feel as scared as possible. But the main thing for me was, and again, it brings us back to how much it's grounded in reality, was we didn't get some sob story about how his character was like, you know, perpetuating the cycle of abuse or he did a shit time. He was just a bad guy. And I think it was just, you know, there are some people in life who are just bad people. And he was one of them. And I, I really appreciate the fact that it didn't give him any background or context. He was just a bad guy doing bad things and trying to scare these children as much because obviously, you know, maybe he was getting pleasure from the, the fright or whatever, but... I I like once I stopped trying to kind of unpick it too much. I liked what they did with the the mask element of it. Regarding the mask, I've got a theory. I thought of as you mentioned that uh, is it possible that he was wearing the mask to hide his own self from the kids because it, it, it helped distance him from what he was doing. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, Maybe. I thought it was all just sort of part of his process. He didn't want to. The mask was a sort of barrier between him and the kids, so that he didn't feel anything for them is no empathy at all and it's it's a way of stopping that just shutting that down completely and i think he liked the fact that he kept the kids scared all the time just that was all it's it's what worked for him in terms of his process and what he was ultimately going to do and i like like you say mary i like the fact that you didn't get a backstory for him but you you didn't really get a an understanding of what he actually did either that was left up to your own imagination you knew that these kids disappeared never to be seen again but what actually happened to them and you you didn't even really get a flavor of that from when we were in the room with Finney either because one of the first interactions he, he, he brought down food for him and he brought water and he says you know here you go and it's like the obviously Finney was like no I'm not touching and he says well why would I drug you I've already got you here if I wanted to drug you, I would have done it, you know, when we were in the van or I'd have killed you when we were in the van. And you're thinking, yeah, right enough, yeah, yeah. There was that scene, and this is this is in the trailer, so it's not really a spoiler. But when he comes down and he asks Finney what his name is, and Finney gives him a false name, but he knows he's lying because he saw Finney's name in the paper. And he throws the paper down and he goes, I'm starting to let you. I was even going to let you go. And he closes the door and you think, okay, we know he wasn't going to let him go. To be a kid thinking that hope, that kind of yeah. optimism that maybe he might have just been able to convince him. Yeah, it was cruel. Yeah, it was another another bit of mental mental torture. Horrendous, <laughs> and it just it was just so vicious. But it was it was a way even even Hawk's voice in the film was very interesting. It's got a childlike quality to it. Mm-hmm. It's almost it's just John. He's, he's, he's got no empathy whatsoever, but it's a really fake empathy he tries to display. He's like, well, here's, a, here's some juice, here's some food, yeah, my friend, I won't do anything. He says something like, I won't do anything to you that you wouldn't like. Yeah, and, uh, that was yeah. the comment. That was the comment that really got me because I was like, oh, my stomach's just turned. Because, again, I think it was the when you sort of realise the sort of bread, like range of bread to the victims, I'm just like, what the fuck has been going on in that basement? Because you just, it was that comment that made me go, oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. I agree with what you're saying about his voice, like because sometimes it was quite masked by the mask, for want of a better phrase. But other times it did feel quite light and sort of tinkly and almost like, oh, that's your children's entertainer voice, because that's the sort of light, floaty. And 
we never really got a sense of who he was because we don't actually know if he was a children's entertainer or just a guy driving around in a van with some balloons but it was like and again that's what made him so fascinating because it was like who who are you really and you know how are you able to, to do this so so brazenly because we do we see the van go back and forth and it's just when you think of some of the victims who were strong kids you just think how how are you doing this it's it, yeah it was kind of a really fascinating villain and you're spot on there as well the idea that I mean, this is based on a short story so it's, it's not some magnum opus novel or that and i think it's really clever what i've done is i've not read the story but i've read they've stayed true to the source material they haven't tried to flesh it out to fill time by going but right, here's some backstory of the grabber it's just maybe here's his childhood let's try and fill and pad some things out here they went no 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 here's what he is you don't need to know all these details the fact that you're asking these questions at the end of the film is good because you want to know more, but it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of the film that they're absent. We don't need to know his backstory. We don't need to know more about him. He's a child killer. That's all you know. You never see him as a, a normal person out in the world. Mm-hmm. He's, it's just that the, the film isn't interested in showing that aspect of him because in a way that kind of detracts from how you imagine him to be. Because you can imagine... like I think it would take away some of the impact to the performance if you saw him as a normal person just interacting with, you know, like going down the shops or whatever, because mm-hmm. then it's not imagined anymore. It's actually there for you to to judge and contrast and compare. Because when he's in the grabber mode, he's very still. He doesn't move about like you say when like he's, he's just sitting there when Finney wakes up or he always just stands at the door. He tends not to raise his voice at all. It's all on a fair, fairly level plane all the time. He does get angry, obviously, but there's, there's, it's only, it's, it's measured. Yeah. And that's creepier than an outlandish performance. Of course, there, yeah, without spoiling anything, there are a couple of wee bits in it that you go, oh, oh Jesus, <laughs> nearly yeah. shot myself. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, mean, I, think that, I think jump scales get too much of a bad rap in terms of the term jump scare, because there's some very, very effective jump scares in movies, and jump scares mm-hmm. are there to make you jump. It's unfortunate a lot of films do them badly, and they start to, and they do them too often in the same film, and they start to get that bad reputation of this film's a jump scare film. But even the quote-unquote elevated horror films will still have jump scares in them. They just utilise them a different way, because Jaws has two jump scares in it, and Spielberg's famously said, like, he wishes he, wish he only kept one, because he felt when he mm-hmm. done the first one, Second one was ruined. Mm. Personally, I don't, I don't really agree with that. I, I don't think it made the second one any less effective. But I do see his point. If you're going to do a jump scare, keep it to the minimum. Otherwise, you start to expect it. And I think that's the problem with a lot of horror films is they do them too much at the beginning. It's like catch them at a cupboard, that kind of thing. That when the real scares happen, you've almost desensitised it because you'd expect it. It's a roller coaster. You can only go up and down so many times before you start to go, right, oh, she's getting off this now. This film keeps the jump scares to a minimum. In many years, it's very, very effectively and they're sustained. It's not a case of, ah, then you sit down, the jump scare happens and it keeps you at that level for a bit. And mm. then you can come back down as the scene changes. And I think that's a really difficult thing for films to do and it does it really well in here. But regarding Ethan Hawke, though, he was hesitant to take this role on. He didn't want to be remembered as a villain. And then he realized, Is that because <laughs> it was going to time it a lot? Because I think he shot this before Moon Knight. Is that right? So is that 
the reason why because hmm. he thought it'd be two kind of pieces coming out at once or just because of his previous that would make sense roles. actually that would make sense yeah. I suppose I keep forgetting he was in that but he did say well my 50s now maybe villains are what I do because <laughs> a 50 year old white male is the scariest thing in the world right now if you're a woman so that's <laughs> yeah. fair that's fair <laughs> especially when a line they're sitting shirtless with a belt <laughs> No, that wasn't scary. That wasn't a jump scare. I was like, oh, where's this film going? <laughs> he does, like, I must admit, I never thought of him as someone who was quite, like, bulky. But that scene in particular, one, I'm like, as soon as you know he's left the door open, you're just like, don't fucking do it. This is so obviously a trap. But as you say, John, it's the stillness, because he looks so broad. Like, I feel like he fills that kitchen, and he's mm-hmm. just sitting there. You're not sure if he's awake. You're not sure if he's breathing. He's just sitting there. And I was like, this is really, like, this is more scary than, like, you see, like, the cats jumping out the cupboard, all that sort of thing. It's that sustained terror where you're just like, I've no idea what's happening next, so I'm just going to hold my breath <laughs> until something else happens because <laughs> it's too much. But that was really well done. Sitting with his dad bod. See, that is a dad bod. Sorry, Ethan. <laughs> as is the case with any horror film that's got a little bit of success in this film has been very successful at the box office so far and the critics for the most part are enjoying it there is talk of a sequel this has actually been by Joe Hill himself who's pitched the idea to Scott Derrickson and Scott Derrickson seems to be on board of it based on where the, where the sequel ideas are coming from what's your thoughts are you still kind of like uh, Need it. it all depends on the story, doesn't it? It all depends on the idea. Now, if the idea is coming from the source of the story in the first place, then you would think it would be pretty good. He's got a good track record, Joe Hill, in terms of his stories. And he's got no reason to want to sully the, the memory of a, a good story by pitching an inferior story to follow it up. It doesn't do his brand any good if he's saying, oh, I've got an idea for this, and it turns out to be... Like the difference between alien and aliens, and it's the black phone and the black phones. You know, is it set? <laughs> is it is it going to be like saw? It's going to be like in different locations, and they can talk to each other on the phone. You know, who knows? But no, black phone too, electric boogaloo. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Just, obviously, we'd need to be completely separate characters and things like yeah. that, just to make it work. You would need to introduce other can it elements. Go like it's quite a compact. Yeah. I'm not going to say neatly tied up with a ribbon, but it's. it's they get yeah. there. I don't really know what else they can do with it. However, as you say, if it's come from the source, then yeah. we must no, place no faith one, in that. No one thing we mentioned so far, Scott, Scott Derrickson mentioned that, that Joe Hill pitched him a wonderful idea. That's mm-hmm. cool. Okay. That's all she mentions. The fact that, again, if this is just a studio saying, right, the film's been successful, boom, do a sequel. But, I mean, if, if the short story came out in 2004, so it's possible Joe Hill's had an idea kicking about his head for a while anyway. It's not this. Yeah, I'll be intrigued. I'll be intrigued, but I personally can't think where the film would go. They're set in here. space. They're always set in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the grabber in space. I suppose it's worth mentioning as well that this film's got an awesome soundtrack. Oh, it really does. Yeah. It's got yeah, that. It's, uh, Mark Corvin did the music for it, who the guy, same guy that did The Witch and The Lighthouse. So, really? there ah, yeah. there we go. Yeah. I was thinking about that was... the, the, the original song brings you the mm. track itself. The score is really good as well. The score is great. It's that definitely summer rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, ah, it's, it's good. Fox and things like that's really good. But also, you get look at the film. The cinematography I thought was really interesting, especially the the dream sequences, and it has that home movie look to it. 
that eight millimeter style. I thought really adding there an order of creepiness to it, but yeah, it worked really well, didn't it? It was the whole sort of production all fitted in very well together, like you say. The music of the time and everything, and the, the color palette and the, the cinematography all kind of blended very well. It'd obviously been very well thought out. So, yeah, I just I wonder what if they were going to do another one, would it be set in the same time period or later? I suppose possibilities are endless, aren't they? Did they have an origin story they grab? But I don't know. I don't think that would be particularly good with it. It's interesting yeah. to see though that like you mentioned earlier how there was a long time gap between the film premiering and actually coming out. I think that was down to Blumhouse, the initial reaction they got to the film. They were originally going to issue it January, February time and held it back for a summer release because they thought it was going to be a strong film in the summer. They would get a really good reaction and I think it's turned out that way. I think they've Obviously, made their money back quite easily on it. Well, they, they tend to do that anyway, don't they? Blumhouse with their yeah, films. Blumhouse. They, they've got a budget yeah. for initial films and then they, they up it by something like five million for any sequels that they do. So, even then, all they need is a decent opening weekend and they've broken even. So, yeah. and the thing is, I do think a lot of people are at the cinema just now because you've still got Top Gun, you've got Elvis, you've got this. And I think there's like something for everyone, is it weird? But I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm going to go and see. Top Gun and the Black Phone, or Top Gun and Elvis, or Elvis and like people are like they're staying at the cinema for the whole day and they're and they're watching a couple of films. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's definitely benefiting from these really big, you know, numbers being in the cinema because people are going to go and see that as well. I mean, apart from the fact that it's just a generally good film, but I think it's benefiting from the fact that people are excited about the cinema just now. I think. Yeah, and it's a short film as well. It's only what about an hour and forty minutes, yeah. whereas Elvis is. Best part of an hour longer than that. Uh, yeah. Jurassic World, same. It's about two and a half hours long. So there's there's something to be said for going into a film that's a bit shorter, especially for uh, the older bladders amongst us. <laughs> it's, it's one of those films <laughs> as well. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those films as well that it's always it's, it's doing well at the box office, but it's got the potential to also find a new market on demand. Because, as you mentioned, John, the the short runtime of it, mm-hmm. it's a very compact, watchable movie. It's just it's it's not like Top Gun, for example, where you need to see it in the cinema. Aye. You know, you, you could wait and watch this at home, and it just be as enjoyable. And it's a film, I think. It'd be interesting to watch it, the review, review, uh, repeat value actually, the rewatch value of mm-hmm. it. Would be interesting. Because mm-hmm. um, I'd watch it again. I think it would hold up. I think it would be just as scary at home. Yeah, I think there would be a few wee elements that you could pick up in a second watch that you may have missed in the first one. Some of the the background stuff, definitely. Not so much with the main story, but obviously there's more of the sister's story. I think you could pick up a wee bit more in that as well and her interactions with the police and her father and everything as well. So, yeah, there's, there's more to sort of glean from it and I think it would benefit from a second viewing. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe I think maybe even just... another wee cinema trip. Mm. Yeah, because I, I would quite like now that we've talked about it. I would quite like to watch some of the background stuff. So, see, like when Finney was in school, I kind of want to now go. Okay, what was going? What else was going on in the classroom? Because obviously, you're you're honing in on what's happened yeah. to him. I'm like, I, I want to go back and see what else was happening, sort of in the corners, as it were. Because I'm sure there was loads of sort of foreshadowing or whatever going on that I've just been so absorbed with him that I've, that I've missed. I would like to also see as well that I can't remember the actor's name that plays the dad. Jeremy Davies. Yes, he yeah. was excellent. Like that was not a 
not a nice but I mean as much as like you know Ethan Hawke gets to be kind of like this almost sort of like glamorized villain that was brutal that's just a man who's completely broken he's lost his wife he's lost his job and he's beaten the shit out of his kids like I thought he did an absolutely phenomenal job with what ultimately is just not a very nice character but not nice with with the backstory as it were and with the context but I thought he did a really good job yeah yeah he's got a pretty decent filmography as well he's been in a few mm-hmm. uh, decent things oh, as soon as I saw his face I was like oh I know who you are then I do that thing where I try to like bring up IMDB in my head <laughs> it was lost I remember seeing yeah. on yeah, it was uh, yeah more than anything else but he's been in all sorts of things he was unjustified so aye and lots of Arrowverse stuff and things like that as well so yeah, yeah. Interesting. And also, it's also good to see, uh, without giving too much information on the character himself, but James Ransom in the film is Max. Really eager to help. Uh, neighbor. That's what, that's what I've got to tell Levitate in the film. That, um, yeah. Did it fit? Did it not? It's hard to tell, but I quite liked it because it's a very dark film and sometimes you just need a wee something. Yeah, it was yeah. a weird comic thing for me i must admit i'm not a hundred percent convinced on it however if something that exciting was happening in my neighborhood i'd be out with a red string as well there's no two ways about it of all the elements going on i felt that was the one that least worked for me just because it just seemed too funny yeah oh, definitely. It was i do like uh, him as an actor mind you so it was good to see him pop up knowing i know mostly from the wire but I'm pretty sure he also was in Sinister 2. But even Hotblood was in the first one, he was in the second one. The Scott Derrickson's collaborator, C. Robert Cargill. Cargill? Can't pronounce his name. Cargo. C. Robert Cargo. C. Robert Cargo. Yeah. He wrote the film with him and he said he really wanted Scott Derrickson to direct, but obviously he was caught up with Marvel and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That didn't work out too well. He left the project and was replaced by Sam Raimi, who is no stranger to the horror genre himself. As much as I really enjoyed the Black Four, I'm glad we got to see it. A partner still wants to see it. I enjoyed Doctor Strange. I really want to see Scott Derrickson's Multiverse of Madness. I really do. Yeah, I agree. I thought I watched Multiverse of Madness at the weekend and I'd completely forgotten about it already. I thought it was a bit glib and it wasn't the Marvel horror that I thought it was going to be, which is a shame because it, it had all the elements that could have made it a really good horror, like the themes of you know, like grief and loss and sort of coming to terms with your identity and I thought oh this is perfect this is going to be really scary and yeah there's a part of me that's really longing for the release the the Scott Derrickson cut because I want to see what they what they achieved before he before he stepped away. I mean you can watch the Multiverse of Man you can see Sam Raimi's trying to get his shit in so to speak and there's a very clear Sam Raimi style shots and directing the film but then you know Scott Derrickson walked away from this project because he couldn't do what he wanted and you kind of think how how horror was this film going to be? Because I remember when it first got announced, and they were saying it's going to be a horror film. It's going to be Marvel's first horror. And I'm like, it's got Derrickson. This is going to be. Because I, mean, I really enjoyed the first Doctor Strange. I thought it was very well done. Watch it. I'm thinking this is going to be a very interesting movie. What's he going to do? And then he left. I'm like, ah. And then Sam Raimi comes on. You think, oh great. And you watch it and go, yeah, it's still very Marvel. Yeah, it was like I said, it was very very safe for me, and I wanted to see something a lot more scary because it was it was billed as marvel's first horror and i thought this would be perfect but actually if it allowed him to to step away and make something as good as the the black phone and that you know nice creepy slow burn then i'll i'll take the take the hit as it were and i could be totally wrong with this but i get the impression of blumhouse as well that jason blum gives his directors a lot of creative freedom and what to do i mean you get to that kind of stage now you're looking at blumhouse films there's so many coming out amazon originals things like that that 
not everything's going to be a hit, not everything's going to be quality. I watched one a while ago called Dashcam, which I thought was quite interesting. It was I written by the... the it was written by the people that did host films and Shudder, yeah, which is really, really good. Um, Dashcam is... I really enjoyed it. For, 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 it's a found footage film, so there's only so much you can do that's original. It's effective for the most part. The main character's really good. And again, it's not a Blumhouse film. And it's, it's a bit off the wall at times. And with this, you can kind of think to yourself, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of studio involvement, mm-hmm. especially when the fact it's people reporting it's so faithful to the source material. And there's no, let's put in a backstory here, as we mentioned, let's try and do this. It's just, let the film just tell its story. And it works for it, in my opinion. But again, I could be wrong. Drug on just Blum's a total psychopath that has <laughs> creative control over everything. <laughs> no, he's got a very good reputation with yeah. filmmakers just because, like I say, he provides the money, provides guidance, but I think he steps back and lets them do what they need to do because it, it would be very unusual for one of these films to not make money, uh, no matter the sort of quality of it. And there, there are, obviously there's a level of quality. They're hiring very accomplished people. Alexis Scott Derrickson has a, a very good track record, obviously, with horror films, but... Th- they give a chance to sort of first-time directors, like, like I said, the guy uh, directed Host. This is only his third film, I think he did one before Host, I'm not sure. But because they cost so little, they make the money back. The, the film could be a flop, and they would still make the money back on Amazon, Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Video On Demand, because there is a market for it. It's, there's a name brand attached to it. That, and I don't think they really drop they, they dip below that in any way, so... I was going to say, I think for a lot of horror fans, even just fans of cinema, if you see, I've heard people actually say, have you seen the trailer for the new Bloomhouse? As opposed to, have you seen the trailer for the Black Phone? So I think there's a kind of, that label as a sort of market of quality that you automatically go, okay, I'll maybe give that a watch because it's, it's coming from that studio. Yeah, and the same with that stage. I don't know if you noticed, uh, watching the Black Phone, that the opening credits had a very Marvel Studios feel to it. Yeah. showing their different properties. I thought, okay, that's that's like a, a marker of intent right there, because you've recognised quite a few of the characters that were shown yeah. in that, that intro, and you're thinking, yeah, it's, this is a very successful production company, as you mentioned, Emily. I, mean, I know personally, I will watch a film because one house has produced it. If I see that name on a film, I'll go and watch it. Apparently that's the first time they used that logo. Obviously, like you say, it is almost like a statement of intent. This is what we're going to be like from the future. Yeah, it's, it's quite clever the way they've done it as well, with it going through the house and all that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. aye. very good. Very good indeed. Yeah, and next up this year, they've got uh, the, the end of the Halloween trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can they pull it back? I was going to say, I think I'll maybe give that one a wee miss. <laughs> we're talking about markers of quality, then I'm like, mm, well, I'm not going to go and see that. <laughs> <laughs> Any more thoughts on the black phone? Uh, I've pretty much covered everything I want to. I can't think of anything else. Just to, I just note near the budget was $16 million and the box office so far is $45 million. So general rule of thumb is you have the budget and then you double it for marketing. So they've already, they're already in profit by about $15 million, which, you know, before it even ends at cinema run, it's only been out for, what, a week? A week, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's pretty good going. And also it's only nice. been a week and we're already potting it. Like, we are on it, guys. <laughs> Must do worse. <laughs> That's what we have to aim for. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll just release that in, like, 2035. <laughs> ah, yeah. uh, just because we've recorded it doesn't mean it's actually going to come out anytime soon. That's no, if I've got anything to do with it. People listening going, 
yeah, it's a really shady event made the Black Phone 7. <laughs> Apart from you, because you'll be like, yeah, it's Black Phone 7. <laughs> yeah, I, you know you know me, I, I love a good horror franchise. I'm almost disappointed to be in that cop ended up with the well, that's quite an enthusiastic review of the movie, but in true movie scramble fashion, is this a film you would recommend, maybe? Oh, absolutely. I thought it was really well done. And yeah, I'm not known for my love of horror, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. John? Yep, fun for the whole family. You know, take <laughs> Granny along. <laughs> everybody should see this film. No, it was really, really good. Really enjoyed it. I would recommend it to everybody to watch it. Just And like you said, if you don't get a chance to see it at the cinema, it will be on a streaming platform near you, so seek it out. It's well worth it. Recommend it to me, Dave. Sorry. You're too good at that. That's actually a bit creepy. Yeah, squads. sorry about that, yeah. Right. <laughs> we'll try yeah, and do it every a, week. It's, it's also recommended for myself. Um, as a unanimous recommended from the Movie Scramble team, please go and see the platform in the cinema if you can. As we've mentioned, it's something you can watch at the house, but support your cinema. It's important as my ethos. So, is there any news we want to speak about before we wrap things up? The trailer for See How They Run came out, and that looks excellent. I'm very excited about that. Saoirse Ronan and Sam Rockwell obviously doing this kind of like period piece murder mystery, like big sort of knives out vibes to it. It's got a huge ensemble cast. I'm just, I am so there in the front row uh, already. I just, I think it it looks perfect. It looks really good fun. I was a bit suspicious of it because it was. I thought it was going to be very close to sort of knives out, but it's mm-hmm. not really. Just you know, it seems that obviously because that was a hit, I expected a, a slew of sort of inferior films to make their way out, and I thought, oh, this will be the first of it. But it actually looks really good, so it's interesting. Have you seen the trailer for Predator? Today? No, no. TV show or movie? Movie. It's coming straight to Hulu or Disney Plus in the UK. What? I'm a bit disappointed where I thought the, the fact that it's bypassing cinema. I'd like to I'd like to see a theatrical release of it, but mm-hmm. it's set uh, I think it's the 1800s in the predator hunting uh, Native American tribe, so it's very different from the previous yeah. films we've seen, and they're also going to release a version of it in the native language. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Ooh. And what I'm hoping is that version isn't dubbed in sense of the film in English and they're dubbing it over because it was still just looked a bit off. But yeah. uh, the trailer for it is worth having a look at. It looks very interesting. And it's directed by the name that doesn't escape the director doesn't escape some but it done Cloverfield Lane. One thing I did read, which I'm not sure if it's true or just a rumour, but apparently Matt Reeves is eyeing up Benny Safdie to play Harvey Dent in the Batman sequel. Did you read that? I didn't read that, but that's a pretty good shout. That sounds quite cool, doesn't it? I'm not yeah. sure if it's concrete or if it's just a rumour, but I thought that that I can get on board with. That sounds quite cool. Mm-hmm. Is Dan Trachtenberg? Sorry. Yes. Uh, I think he's a compatriot of C. Robert Cargill. I think they're in the same sort of pod universe because they've both been involved in podcasts, really, the slash film cast and mm-hmm. People like that. There's a few of those people they seem to pop up, or they did pop up in the same sort of podcast all the time. Mm-hmm. Some of the ones I listen to. Something I saw that the new James Bond film won't be in cinemas until tw- at least 2025 yeah, because they don't have an idea yet. They don't have the story about how they're going to take it forward. And obviously, in fairness, it does seem a bit like, again, what can they do? With it? Yeah, aye. 
and they're, they're not going to hire anybody until they've got the story because that will determine and that's, sort of yeah, that's whether good. it's that's going good. to be like a young actor or whatever you know so did you see miles teller's granny on twitter no <laughs> it's a true story she actually tweeted saying i think he would you know if you look because obviously Bar there was an article about barbara broccoli and how she was deciding what she was going to do with it blah 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 and she retweeted it saying i know a really nice young boy that would be perfect for it he's he's good at this he's good at that he's he's studied drama so he can do accents he can be british if you want him to be like his <laughs> gran was just out pitching him for a role which i thought was really sweet actually i thought that was like oh total granny move like oh take my grandson take my grandson of course, one of the things that's come out over the last week or so is the first images from the Barbie movie. Yes. yes. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that at all. It looks fun, but I, I've got well, just no idea what it's going to be um, like. That'll be interesting. I think it looks amazing. But I'm, what two things? One, I'm worried we've seen too much of it already. And two, is this like a serious thing where they're pretending to be dolls? Or I don't actually understand the concept of what they're doing, but either way, <laughs> I'm on board. It's a kind of live action Toy Story way. Really, really because it's a very good cast, let's be honest. And again, yeah, it's, yeah who knows what the hell this film's going to be about, really? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be coming soon anyway, I think. And at least if it, I mean, I don't know whether you take it totally. Who's directing it again? Professor Gerwig's. Yeah, I so that so like a serious director, do you know what I mean? That's yeah. why I'm like, is this a real thing, or is this like a woman who imagines she's Barbie, and this is actually a film about midlife crisis, or like I'm just like, what is going on? Because all the costumes are just, I mean, I swear I have this, the not me personally, but I swear my Barbie dolls have the skating costumes that they've been out in this week. <laughs> like they're very early nineties Barbie doll. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, uh, we we'll just need to wait and see because I don't think we're going to get well until we actually get a trailer. I don't know what mm -hmm. it'll be like. But yeah, it should be interesting. If nothing else. Yes. It's, it's very, very intriguing, but yeah. It's due I'm, to I'm, come I'm, out on the same I'm, day as Oppenheimer, so that'll be another weird double bill of the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it'd be better to see first, some Barbie or some Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good a good point. Would you like to see first? Because I'm feeling like I just going to uh, the film's also so it's written by Noam Bombach. Yeah. Who did yeah, a marriage right. story. Yeah, because they're yeah. partners. They're a couple, they aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they've been together for a while and they've worked and yeah, they have a relationship together as well, yeah. yeah. It could be very weird. It could be, but part of me's kind of here from but definitely, definitely. So, I think that's us. I think I'd so, yes. thank all of you and the singular you for listening. Do you appreciate that? <laughs> For getting us um, to 50. <laughs> if you enjoyed the black phone or didn't enjoy the black phone or have any comments regarding the movie or our review of it, you can send all your hate mail to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Movie Scramble. Or if you're not interested in me or Mary and just want to send sexy emails to John, John, let's find here. you. <laughs> yeah, don't want dick pics, but duck pics will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but not even sexy ducks, just normal ducks, please. Okay, that says a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually even worse that it's not sexy duck for some reason. I think it's worse than just a normal duck. If it was yeah. a sexy duck. You also know, held the duck. Yeah. No, that's nightmare fuel. That's not a sexy duck. 
No, but that's see, when, see that. when we finish the pod, Mary, go and to Google and type in sexy duck and see what comes up. See, in fairness, <laughs> it's the least of my worries with my search history. So. <laughs> and put me mode as your friend. <laughs> yeah, John, where can, where can they email you some duck pics? I, I think I'll get some now, yeah. Obviously, it's podcast at moviescramble.co.uk for all your <laughs> mallard needs. Ducking needs? <laughs> <laughs> Stick your beak in John's inbox. Oh, oh no. I'm away. Oh, yeah, dear. I think after discussing a quite a serious horror movie about a child killer, possible paedophile, to take it out of the level. Lower than that, I think that's a good time to uh, end it. So <laughs> thanks all for listening. Thanks, Mary and John, for joining. And the three of us together, again, is never a bad thing. So yep. go and uh, see the black phone, send John duck pics, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. <laughs> You're despicable.